Ed Begley Jr. is an actor and environmental activist who has appeared in countless TV shows and movies over the years, from his Emmy-nominated performance in St. Elsewhere to This Is Spinal Tap, numerous Christopher Guest films, Arrested Development, Better Call Saul, and much, much more. And he's just released his memoir to recount it all. It's titled To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. Ed, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Trey, it's good to be with you again. Yes, it's a pleasure. Uh, a couple of times in a couple of weeks. I hope your travels have been good since then. I know you went to Chicago to talk about the book, and uh, I was looking forward to reading it after the first time we spoke, and it did not disappoint. So congratulations on that. And I guess the starting point for us today is how did your uh, your old friend, the, uh, the late, great Carrie Fisher, uh, get major credit for you writing this book? You know, she influenced me in so many important ways. She was a wonderful actress and then made a big turn in her life and became a, a best-selling author. You know, she wrote uh, Postcards for the Edge, uh, Delusions of Grandma, Surrender the Pink. She wrote all these great books and quick, quickly proved herself as uh, a talent in another field besides acting. She's amazing woman, very smart woman, and I've known her since I was about 14 years old. And... She was a good deal younger. She was maybe eight or nine. Then I met her with her mother, who'd done a movie with my dad called uh, Unsinkable Molly Brown. Your dad, Ed, is obviously or was a legendary actor in his own right. <clears throat> Oscar winner, Tony winner as well. What was Ed Sr. like as a dad, though? He was a great father, really. He did the best he could with what he was given, and he had a hard time of it growing up. But he did very, very well. He was a wonderful actor. And he was so good at his craft, he made it look easy. I thought, well, I can do that. I see my dad doing it. You know, if I'd been, if my dad had been a plumber, I think I'd be doing plumbing today. I'd be fitting pipe. But I wanted to do what he did, and he made it look so easy. I didn't think I needed classes or to mess with anything like that, going to acting school. I thought, I'm, I'm pretty charming. Get me a series. And thank God I didn't get a series. <clears throat> but I auditioned for about 10 or 12 parts over the years from age, let's say 10 to age 17, didn't get a thing tray for obvious reasons. Imagine the son of a plumber going, well, I see what you do. You kind of put pipe together. That looks easy. I'll do that. You have to train. You have to apprentice. You have to work. Finally, when I started to do some some training, I began to work as an actor in 1967. Uh, you know, this book is good for so many reasons. That includes you being very forthright about things that some people might be embarrassed about. And you admit the first 30 years of your life, uh, because of who your dad was and uh, what your general upbringing was, was, was uh, full of good fortune and privilege. But you were completely oblivious to that. Part of that might have had to do with the fact that you had a daily regimen of drugs and booze from 1967 to 1979. Ultimately, you get a grip on that, of course, but there were some fascinating moments in between there. For instance, what was it like smoking a joint with Charles Manson? When I met him, he was just some hippie guy. He was 1968, a year before those horrible murders. And so we went up to the this main house near a friend's house. He lived in a tree house near a saloon, but it wasn't a real saloon. It was part of the Spawn Ranch. We went up and smoked a joint with some hippies that were living in the main house, and they seemed rather innocuous. One of them played some songs. He was I didn't hear any of the songs, but he claimed to be a musician. So I, I couldn't help him. I was uh, trying to be an actor. And I didn't know many musicians back then in 68. So a year later, I look in the paper. I called my friend James Jeremiah, who I still see nearly every day. I said, James, 
aren't these the people that we smoked a joint with up at that house near your friend David Curley? He said, absolutely. It's the Manson gang. We smoked a joint with the Manson gang. Did Crazy. you get a weird, weird vibe from them when you were hanging out? Not particular. I'd love to. One of them had pretty crazy eyes. That would be Charlie, you know, mm. the ringleader. He had kind of wacky. He looked a little wacky in the eyes, but he wasn't. Other than that, didn't say or do anything too extraordinary. But I thought, wow, I sure dodged a bullet being around him. But the truth is, I probably did. I'm glad I didn't give my address or phone number. Yeah, I'll help you with your music. Send the tape here. <laughs> I might have gotten a visit. God help me. Yeah, seriously. Now, I'm somebody who's a big nerd for stand-up comedy, so I was especially interested to learn that you did stand-up for several years in the late 60s into the uh, into the 1970s, which included a routine with Michael Richards, he of Cosmo Kramer fame from Seinfeld. You guys even performed at the Comedy Store the very first week that it was open. Now, the Comedy Store has become one of the epicenters for stand-up comedy over the last 50 or so years now, did you have any sense in that first week that it would uh, blow up to be something as big as it's become? No, before that, the clubs you wanted to play it were the Troubadour and the Ice House, clubs like that in LA and other clubs in other parts of the country and parts of the world. <clears throat> you would open up for a musical act. I'd open up for Don McLean or Log of the Messina or John Sebastian or Poco, Neil Sedaka, Can't Heat, all these different people I would be an opening act for. And sometimes the the comic was the main act, Richard Pryor, you know, uh, Albert Brooks, these wonderful comedians who would be the main act because they were Steve Martin, very successful. But all of them started as an opening act. And so we had no idea what we were doing, Michael and I. Well, Michael had a great gift and I was kind of trying to hang on by my fingernails to his talent. But, uh, you know, we thought we had invented improv. We didn't know there was a Viola Spolin and a book about act about improv acting and we didn't know the rules. We had no idea what we were doing. Avery Schreiber came to see the act, gave us some good tips. We didn't really listen to him. You also did your own solo thing as a stand-up comedian, and you uh, you admit that you were a prop comic, but prior to the era of uh, of Carrot Top and Gallagher, and you even incorporated a uh, a cop routine where you dressed up like a cop uh, to come out on stage. To how did this get you into quite a bit of trouble at one point in the seventies? The bit would usually piss people off at the outset because I get the sound guy, you know, denounce on Mike before I came out. We're going to get to the main act in a little while. Dave Mason will be coming out to play some of his wonderful music. But beforehand, we have a member of the Los Angeles Police Department who's here, wants to talk to you kids about some problems in the community. And people would boo. But the ones who were booing the loudest would soon be laughing the loudest as I started to talk on drugs to help the kids to stay away from drugs that became more and more absurd. Pretty soon, everybody realized it was a joke and they'd be laughing pretty, you know, it was the seventies. So drug humor was big. And, uh, I did that. Then I came out, I had a changing screen behind me. I changed into like a thing with a long haired wig and I had an IV into my arm. I was a rock musician that was playing not any instrument because I was part of the capitalistic pig society, but I would play my body. So I would be pure and not waste any energy on building an instrument. And then I would come out with a nun's habit on. I had a thing called the nun story. And then I had, a a bunch of other different insane things. But I, I think, Trey, I wanted to make my life as complicated as possible. I had a slide projector, finally. I had a audio playback. You know, how can you make your life as difficult as possible on the road, lugging all this stuff around and getting to work right every night? My friend Tony Amatulo came and saved me. He was a friend of Bruno Kirby's, my dear, dear acting friend, Bruno. So, but one the night you mentioned, I don't want to avoid that. 
I went out in front of the troubadour one night walking over to Tata's and the cops, the sheriff's department came and arrested me because I was in a full, legitimate, real LAPD uniform. You could go and buy it at Sam Cooke Uniforms. You could. That's where the cops bought their uniforms. But I didn't have a real badge. I had like a security officer badge. But people don't even look at badges. I look like an LAPD officer. And so that was kind of the, you know, the blessing of doing the bit. You had to look kind of real, but out on the street, I should have taken the shirt off before I walked next door. I spent the weekend in jail doing some of my best comedy material to keep their minds off other things, Trey. <laughs> we won't go any further there. People just need to buy the book to hear about that. You going from uh, the drunk tank to actual jail and having to figure your way there. Now, did you stop doing stand-up because the acting career really started to take off in, in the mid-1970s? Exactly. That was the main reason. The other reason, I'd just been married in 1976. We had uh, one child on the way, another one a little while later after that first wonderful birth. So I had these kids. I didn't want to be in saloons anymore working, which is what a comedy club or a nightclub was back then. You know, it was a place where they served alcohol and guys like me would drink before the set, you know, to try to get relax your nerves. And so I was not a guy who could have one drink. One's too many and a million's not enough. was kind of my mantra. And so uh, I stopped doing comedy because the acting picked up. And then, uh, you know, it, it just life became a lot easier with somebody. Five minutes, Mr. Begley. And they had the sound handled. They had all the lighting handled. I didn't have to worry about anything where I put my little lavalier mic or other stuff that I was doing to do my act. No slide projections I had to manage, no audio playback. So it's a much easier life as an actor. I, I, I decided to make things simpler. That's probably a good idea. One of the roles that really uh, put you on the map as an actor, Ed, was uh, your performance in Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. As a matter of fact, at some point you get invited to a dinner party at John Lennon and Yoko Ono's place. And while you're trying not to freak out because it's John Lennon, after all, they end up re realizing that they recognize you from that show and they start nerding out to you and just how good of a job you were on that TV series. That had to have been a pretty surreal moment for you. The whole thing was surreal because Harry Nelson sucker punched me. He said, you want to have dinner with Una and I, his wife, Una? We're going to have dinner with some friends, is all he said, friends. So then we get in the car, we head over to the Dakota. Wait a minute. I know some friends of his that live in Dakota. Can't be that. He would have prepared me for that. Who opens the door but John Lennon, Yoko right behind him. Hello, come on in. Welcome. Well, wait a minute. I know this. Who, who's this. I know you. And we sat and he couldn't quite, quite figure out where he knew me from. John Lennon saying that I'm trying to keep my face from crystallizing and falling to the floor in pieces. And he's saying, I know you. I sit down. We talk for a while. Finally, he goes, Yoko, is the deaf mute for Mary Hoffman? Mary Hoffman, look. What about Louise Lasser? What's she like? You know, and he was like a, a fanboy about Louise Lasser and the show and Norman Lear and Mary Kay Place. It was just surreal, but wonderful to meet a, a talent like that, to spend time with him in his apartment. I, I'm just one lucky guy. Norman Lear is obviously recognized as one of the all-time greats of TV sitcoms. Was his brilliance on display? I don't know how much he was around the set uh, for that show that you were doing, but you, did you ever see his brilliance on display? He was around when needed on that show, around when needed, which was a lot in some other shows I did. I did a show called You're at the Top uh, with uh, Paul Schaefer and Mickey Rooney. I did a, a show called Maud, a wonderful show you're probably aware of called Maud long before your time, but it was a very good show with B. Arthur. I was on that, just one episode, but 
Norman is such a great guy. He knew I had a young family and Mary Hartman had run its course for my character. Maud was one episode. You're at the top. Didn't get picked up. It was a pilot, I think. And so uh, I, uh, I didn't have any work and I had a young family. Norman called up this wonderful woman, Barbara Brogliotti, said, give Ed some work as a still cameraman. I know he takes stills too. So take, have him take some stills on some of the shows. And I did that for a while. Thanks to one Norman Lear. He's still my dear friend. He and Lynn are close, close personal friends. I adore the man for very good reason. You had a couple of uh, big time movies come out in 1978. One, which is uh, maybe a little bit more self-serving considering your comedic background is the movie Blue Collar that had Richard Pryor in it. Now, obviously, by this point, Richard Pryor had proven had uh, established himself as one of, if not the best up stand, uh, best stand ups of that time. Were you able to form any sort of connection with Richard during your time on the set together on Blue Collar? I was very careful. I was very careful with Richard not to push too hard because he wanted to just keep to himself and concentrate on the character. But there came an opportunity one night. We all played poker. All the guys on the show got together and had a card game. And at some point, I couldn't help myself. I was right next to him. I said, Richard, I just want to let you know those two albums changed my life. Your brilliant comedy albums. Thank you. Thank you. He said, what albums are those? <laughs> Uh-oh. Now I got to say the title of the album with that word in it. So I, with, without a beat, thank God, I did it very quickly. I said, well, uh, that Black Man's Crazy and Bicentennial Black Man are great albums. And he laughed his ass off. He was trying to get me to be flustered. And I went right for it. I just segued to another word. And he appreciated it. He knew, he, he liked that I knew that I didn't have the right to use that word. And we were friends ever at, forever after that moment. Now, the other movie that came out in 1978 that you were a part of just has a mind-blowing cast. Um, referring to Going South, whose cast included your friend John Belushi, Christopher Lloyd, Danny DeVito, a young Mary Steenburgen, and it was starring and directed by Jack Nicholson. How Jack actually helped you to become a better actor during filming? He did just by watching his work when I was 15 and 16 years old in those Roger Corman movies. I just thought, who is this guy doing something wonderful and different and dangerous? He's just great. But then on that movie, it was Mary Steenburgen's first movie and she was wonderful in it. But I had I had learned to be relaxed in front of the camera after a few years of working. Uh, I had been on this show called Room 222 a few times and finally gotten to the point where I wouldn't like for you. Oh, the camera's dialing around. Here's the camera. What do I do now? The lens is closed my head. What do I do? What do I do? It just I got very relaxed around the camera and unfortunately spent the next decade or more being relaxed around the camera, which is not very interesting to watch, Trey, being a relaxed around the camera. So I did the first take on this movie going south with Jack Nicholson playing this character named Whitey, who's like the, the bank manager or something. He works at the bank and he's, he holds me up at gunpoint to take Mary Steenburgen's money out of the bank and put it into a wagon and he's about to drive away. And I said, I couldn't figure you, I wouldn't have figured you doing this to Julia, her character's name. And after the first take, Jack says, that all you're going to give me bags? I thought, oh, no, I've just disappointed Jack Nicholson. Because I've idolized him for years. Now I'm working with him. The reason I got the part, it was a, he was doing me a favor to give me this very small, like six line part, five line part, whatever the hell I had. And I couldn't even do one of the lines properly. And I was just freaked out. He was not being unkind, but he was trying to get me to do something. And I took that energy, if you will, that adrenaline where I was scared to death and turned it into something else, into another form of energy. 
and I finally had some light behind my eyes. And I thought of all the wonderful work he had done as an actor with the chicken salad sandwich scene and five easy pieces, many other things. And so I, I, I turned it on and finally was able to find the switch to turn it on because of Jack. And I've had pretty good luck working ever since. He changed my life. Did you ever talk with him about that afterwards? How that was a really epiphanous moment for you as an actor that he helped to inspire? I have. I've mentioned it to him probably more than once. <laughs> he just tells me to shut up. <laughs> so uh, as we previously talked about, you wrote that for the first 30 years of your life, you were completely oblivious to your good fortune and privilege. And that 30 years comes to an end at the end of the 1970s. So what clued you into this and how did you that change your uh, perspective going forward? It was so funny when I first went to Screen Actors Guild to register as an actor in 1967, I actually wanted to change my name, Trey, to like James Begley or to something else. And they said, well, you do you have a legal driver's license for that? I said, no, it says Ed Begley Jr. So you can't be Ed Begley, of course. We already have an Ed Begley on the rolls, but you could be Ed Begley Jr. I went, oh, okay. I reluctantly said yes to that name, thinking... I don't want to be my father's son all the time. I want to be my own person and what have you. And Don't compare me to him. I'm a different person. I look different. I act different. Everything's different. Don't do that. Forgetting the incredible bonus it was being Ed Begley's son. Huge. I won the lottery, Trey. I didn't even buy a ticket. Number mm -hmm. one, they're going to remember my name. I don't care if you're Ed Begley, Rob Reiner, Liza Minnelli. They're going to, number one, remember your name. Number two, they're going to be kind of rooting for you. They're comfortable around you, this new guy coming into the room for an interview because they, I worked with your dad on the Phil Cole Playhouse. We did Pippa McGee and Molly too. We did Richard Diamond, Private Detective on radio. I love the old man. Good luck, Eddie. Top of page eight. Go for it. And that's the way it was. People were A, you know, rooting for me and B, able to remember my name. So when you're trying to get a job interview, you know, there's nothing better than, than having those two factors taken care of. I got a lot of work. I think, you know, as a young actor starting out because I was his son and I finally fortunately started to learn what I was doing. But, yeah, I'm definitely an early Nepo baby before there was even that term. Now, nobody should be surprised to learn that you credit uh, St. Elsewhere. Your role in St. Elsewhere is the job that really changed your life. Numerous primetime Emmy, uh, Emmy nominations, a Golden Globe nomination as well. But how did it help you to further grow as an actor? I had the good fortune when I got the role on St. Elsewhere to uh, know some doctors fairly well. And I had been on fishing trips with them and what have you. So I spent even more time with them and concluded that they never acted like the doctors on TV I saw in the past. Ben Casey or Dr. Kildare, those people that are very serious about the thing. We're going to cut into the heart now. Everybody focus because we give this speech that you've never heard once in an operating room or emergency room. People like a heart specialist. It's like a guy that works on carburetors. He's very good, but he works on the carburetor. That's his specialty, and he does it very good. And he's not, you know, nervous working on the carburetor, unless there's something extraordinary going on. There was that. The other thing was just the good fortune of being the lucky guy that I am. Because I went into St. Elsewhere, Trey, not to audition for the part that I did for six years. I auditioned for the part of Dr. Peter White, because that part was a regular on every episode. I didn't get that part. They gave it to this guy, Terrence Knox. Okay, woe is me. I got another bit of bad luck. They threw me a bone tray and gave me this one or two line part called Dr. Victor Ehrlich. But something clicked with the writing, something clicked with Bill Daniels, and they started to write for my character. 
the part of Dr. Peter White was killed off in the third season. My character was on nearly every every episode but one for six years. And it was one of the more popular characters in the show. So once again, you know, I what I dreamed for was paid off in pence. But what I got myself was in pounds and, and thousands of them. Yeah, and we also can't neglect and let people know that that other character ends up getting killed off as the hospital rapist who gets shot right. in the genitals before getting shot in the chest. Exactly. his demise. Exactly. That would have been my fate if I had gotten what I wanted. So what I wanted was never nearly as good as what I got, you know, from just the universe being one lucky Irish, you know, son of Irish immigrants. Grandson of Irish immigrants. My dad was born in Hartford, but my grandparents came over in a boat. So part of you doing such a great job on St. Elsewhere led to you getting to host Saturday Night Live in 1984. I mean, the cast at the time was incredible. Billy Crystal, your friend Christopher Guest, Martin Short, Julia, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Harry Shearer, Jim Belushi, and Larry David was one of the writers. Was that experience as magical as I would assume it would be, especially for someone with a comedic background like yourself? Any comic that ever lived at that time wanted to do Saturday Night Live and to get the opportunity to do that in 1984 because I was on an NBC show. I think that's why I got lucky enough to be on it. I wasn't the greatest comedian by a long shot, but I was a regular on a, that show, St. Elsewhere, and NBC, you know, Saturday Night Live was an NBC show. So I was asked to host it, and it's just unbelievable. Every day was like you died and gone to heaven. You get to participate in the writing with the writers of the, the show. Then you get to rehearse it. And there's a wonderful formula to the show. They keep telling you all week, Monday when you get together, they tell you, now there's an 8.30 show that we do. We don't use much of it, but we use a little bit of it in case something goes wrong at the 11.30 real show, the kind of more important live show. Sorry for the barking in the background. You're good. So, but the 8.30 show will be going to be a catastrophe. Don't freak out. Tuesday. Oh, by the way, did we mention the 8.30 show is going to be a little bumpy? Yeah, you told me. Wednesday. Now that 8... Yeah, yeah I heard it already. Shut up. Th yes, you're going to tell me about the 8.30 show? Finally, you do it. The 8.30 show is beyond a catastrophe. Everything goes wrong. And then the brilliant structure of that is by the time you do the 11.30 show, just a short time after you've wrapped the 8.30 show, you have no adrenaline left. Your adrenal glands have been squeezed dry. You're just kind of up there and you you know all the lines, you do everything because you've done it, you know, nearly all week and you just did it where everything went wrong. You do it now and nobody's afraid or nervous or anything. It's just a wonderful structure. Lauren Michaels is a, a brilliant man. He came back to the show uh, after that brief uh, hiatus that he took from it. And the show has been great for now since 1976, isn't it? Uh, 75 or six. And I don't know how much of a rapport you established with Larry David uh, during the week of rehearsal and then shooting the show itself, but you've obviously been a part of a couple of Curb Your Enthusiasms over the years, uh, playing Dr. Winokur. Do you have, you know, considering that Larry is a real life version of the character that he plays on Curb and he has all these awkward interactions with folks, do you have a good Larry David story out of curiosity? Yeah, my Larry David story story has to do with Saturday Night Live because he had written a number of sketches for that show in the years that he was there. He was there for a few years. None of them ever made the air. This episode that I did, a wonderful sketch. They were all wonderful, by the way. I saw some of them. I had occasion somehow, I think, to hear about them or see them or something in script form. And they were all brilliantly funny. Every bit as funny as any Seinfeld episode 
it was that wonderful formula about making some little tiny thing into a, some molehill into a mountain. And uh, it was just brilliant. And that one made the air. So I felt honored to be part of this brilliant man's, you know, first sketch that, that was on Saturday Night Live. He was a genius back then and he is to this day. Seinfeld and then now Curb for many years. He's, he's unbelievable. And a person alive, he's a great stand-up comic. He just, I met him on Fridays with Michael Richards in 1980. And he was great, you know, doing that. Just an amazing comic. You describe your life as a sort of Forrest Gumpian type of existence. And to just read some of the stories and some of the people involved, I mean, I think that's a really accurate way to put it. I mean, uh, there's a story. I'm not even going to ask you about all of them. We don't have time today. But uh, you have a story involving uh, involving not just starring in a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, but actually photographing him at a time where the uh, acting roles had run dry for you and him really helping you out there. You've got a, a friendship and a story involving Marlon Brando as well. He calls you up and wants you to be a part of a project. You're excited because you're like, what movie am I about to get to do with Marlon Brando? But it turned out to be a completely different type of project involving electric eels. What was the project and what was your response to Marlon as he was proposing this to you? I had known Marlon for a few years at this point, and I had figured out the rules. The rules were he didn't want to talk about acting, writing, directing, puppetry, claymations, train seals, anything to do with show business. He did want to talk about solar panels, wind turbines, drywall, steel galvanized pipe, you know, versus copper. He just loved all that kind of tech talk and stuff like that, you know, kind of construction material stuff, building. He knew I built some furniture. He loved all that stuff. So I get a call that's very different one day, Trey. The message, I play the message and it's Marlon. He goes, Ed the Bagel, this is Brand Flakes. Give me a shout. There's a project I want to do with you. I've got all the financing. I have distribution. I've always wanted to work with you on something important. And this is it. Let's let's get together and talk about it. Now, this is a different phone call. He's got a project he wants to do with me. He has all the financing, he has distribution. You know, it's clear he's got this wonderful script that I somehow might have a shot or he's going to give me a role in it. So I race up there. He starts talking about how many volts an electric eel has. And I go, what are you talking about? He says, we're going to power every house in America with electric eels. He had the funding for this project. He had distribution of the electric eel technology. He had all the financing, you know. It had nothing to do with acting. And so I, I just couldn't believe it. I thought he was winding me up, Trey. He actually wanted to put electric eels in a pool and run his house with it. I said, Marlon, I don't think that's quite practical, but... Why is everything no with you? He was always, you know, he thought I, would, I was too negative. I didn't want to be negative around him, but I knew better than to be a sycophant. Oh, Marlon, what a great idea. You're so brilliant. That kind of a guy would be out halfway through the, the session with him. But he, he loved to just have people come up and talk, people much more of greater notoriety than me. Than me. But I got to come up there quite often because of, uh, you know, some environmental things and some other things we shared in common. Great guy. And what an actor, my God. You know, you mentioned another uh, close friend of yours a little bit earlier, Bruno Kearney, uh, Kirby, who died, unfortunately, uh, a number of years ago. Uh, how did Bruno influence you as a person, Ed? I was raised by my father and other people in the household. It was often kind of a Darwinian, you know, experience, you know, 
survival of the fittest was kind of the message of the day. Now, my dad was also very kind and loving in many ways, too. And I'm not trying to make my dad out to be the, an ogre. He's nothing like that. But it was more kind of, you know, grow up and keep up and shut up. But with Bruno, he just really, he cared so much for people. And people clearly, they couldn't help his career or help him in any way. There's this guy called Leopold Trieste. He'd worked on the Godfather 2 movie with Bruno. He was a guy who spoke Italian only, a Sicilian only. And he he didn't know anybody in America, couldn't speak English. But Bruno took him around all kinds of wonderful places in America, showed him the country, spent time with him, included him in Thanksgiving plans. That's just what he did. He didn't care about enriching himself in any way. He always wanted to be the best actor, the best person, the best friend. And he succeeded on all fronts. He died in 2006. And there's many friends like uh, Jeff Goldblum and Adam Arkin and Tony Amatulo and me and lots of other female friends in that O'Toole that still you know, miss that wonderful guy. He was a great guy. Why do you credit your friend Christopher Guest with saving your career? Oh, prior to that, I had gone through the whole decade of the 90s really only doing two studio movies. I could do a movie with Hulk Hogan, you know, an independent film with Hulk Hogan called Santa with Muscles, but I wasn't doing any uh, what I would call real movies for a while. For the whole decade of the 90s, I had six weeks on Greedy, and I had one week on a show, uh, a movie called Batman Forever. That's it. Seven weeks, the whole decade. Not because I was blackballed. My name wasn't on a list in a drawer somewhere, but I just gave people the creeps, you know, because I was known as the environmental guy. And more importantly, I had also been in three movies, which I was one of the co-stars of, and they all three tanked. Now, and they got bad reviews. You can get bad reviews, but if you don't do good business and you're in three of those movies, there's a three strikes law in California too for movies. And so I was, you know, out in the back lot there for a while. I was, you know, in movie jail for a few years. And Chris Guest said, you want to be invested in show? You play the desk clerk. I went, absolutely. Ever since then, him putting me in that movie, he bailed me out. He got me out of movie jail and I've been working in films big and small ever since. So once again, thank you, Chris, for everything. Now, Greedy was a Ron Howard and, and Brian uh, Glazer film. Is that how you ended up in Arrested Development after that, too? Probably is. They saved me in the 90s, too. I got to give them credit, too. They gave me this wonderful part. And Jonathan Lynn also had a big hand. The director, Jonathan Lynn, had a big hand in me being cast in that movie. But Brian and Ron were great friends and cared deeply about the environment. So I don't think I gave them the creeps at all with my bike riding or other, you know, insanity i was doing not insanity it was all good stuff but people thought it was crazy and uh really talk about your time on arrested development in this book as a matter of fact you don't spend a ton of time sharing stories from the set there's a little bit of that in there but but not as much as one might expect do you have a fondest memory from your time of shooting arrested development that was not not only one of the all-time uh great sitcoms but i thought you were brilliant in that too you're very kind. I got to play Stan Sitwell, this guy that had alopecia. So occasionally different, you know, like eyebrows would come off and stick to the other actor and what have you when I'm giving him a hug. That happened with Will Arnett. I can't remember if it was scripted or not, but it was so damn funny. I was fighting, fighting to not crack up. And that son of a bitch, uh, Jeffrey Tambor, he literally would set out to try to crack, crack me up. 
you know, I'm in close up here. There's the camera. He'd be over here to the side of the camera. We can't be seen going, what? Ed, what? Why? Oh, really? He would just be totally trying to mess with me to get me to crack up. And I, I took every bit of strength I have to not crack up on camera. He's a very funny man, Jeffrey Tambor. I've known him for years. Brilliant, brilliant actor. Just a cast full of funny people, too, yourself included, by the way. Yeah, nobody's anything less than brilliant. Will Arnett is unbelievable, all of them. Just great. Yeah, Jason Bateman, one of the great smartasses in the last 20 Oh, my God, now so great. What about him in, uh, in uh, Ozark? My God, what a great show that is. He's I didn't a great dramatic that... actor. Yeah. yeah, he does it all. Yeah, I didn't realize he had that. And then he directs a number of episodes of that show, too. Yeah, he's uh... brilliantly directed them. They stand out as really some of the better shows in uh, Ozark's repertoire. Just wonderful, wonderful director, wonderful actor, and also a great guy. Now, not that you've kept this completely private, but this book has let more people into an aspect of your life that has been present for you since 2004 and that you were officially diagnosed with in 2016, and that is Parkinson's disease. Where is modern medicine with the management and treatment of Parkinson's disease right now, Ed? There's probably no good time to get Parkinson's, but this is, I think, right now a less horrible time to get it because with the dopamine they can give you, carbidopa, levodopa, combinations that they can give you, you can actually be something like this, which is not too bad. Wow. Yeah. So that's where it's at today. I do all that stuff, the AMA sanctioned stuff like carbidopa, levodopa. And then for extra credit, my wonderful wife found some things that are also more holistic things that do not contradict, but work well with this AMA sanctioned neuro neurologist given uh, carbidopa levodopa and that is hyperbaric chambers helped me a lot to mm. get some real oxygen infused time in a hyperbaric chamber uh, something called NAD has helped me yeah. something called glutathione uh, stem cells the stem cell of America all these things now I'm not a doctor I'm not prescribing what people should do you know see a, a licensed doctor and all this stuff also quantifiably though has made me feel better all the other stuff too so urge people to do what they think is right. And, you know, there's a lot to be to, to be discovered out there. And I've been very fortunate. I've had it since 2004, very clearly, and to have it this many years and still be doing this well, I'm doing something right. Yeah, congratulations on that. He's not a doctor, folks. He just played one on TV. And I'm Correct. curious, is, are peptides a part of the stem cell treatment? Does that, do, when, whenever you do go through the stem cell treatment, are you uh, doing something with peptides as well? I don't know that, but I'm going to go again December 9th, so I'll look into that and see if that's part of it. That's a good question. I, I should know about that, but I do not. Cool. Well, uh, best of luck with that, Ed. And uh, last question now. This is something you address earlier in the book, but I think it's a good way for us to end here. Why does the phrase, this is it, which you borrowed from an Alan Watts essay, resonate with you so much? Because prior to reading that wonderful book titled, This Is It, and really grasping its meaning, I was always like my dad running around all the time, racing here, racing there. And I hope he had some moments of serenity in his life. You know, I, I seem to remember he had a few, but I wanted a little more than that. So I realized that the, just the title of the book, the book in the window at the bookstore, I grasped its meaning and got it even more by reading the book, of course. This is it, this moment with you and I, Trey, right here, right now, this one. 
is really all there is. We can remember yesterday, we must to grow as a person and plan for tomorrow, we must do that too. But to really, as much as you can live in this moment, right now, right down through the center of it, as we sit here together talking and realize that this moment is actually sublime. We don't have to get enlightened, we're already enlightened by just accepting that fact. And uh, it's kind of wonderful, it's a wonderful book. It'll give you some great details about it, the book, This Is It. But any of Alan Watts' brilliant work, I, I think is quite helpful for people. And there's many other people who are very good, who have uh, you know a path similar to that that they've taken that can be of help. But I really believe that's true. This is it, this moment right now, here it comes again. This is all we get. Enjoy it. Well, I feel like also, especially in this day and age, Ed, that concept is ne has never been more important than now because we all have so many different things pulling our attention in one direction or another. And this is certainly the case with young people as well who are just spending countless hours in front of screens and they, they have no concept of merely yep. being present. And perhaps that means a little bit of boredom, but boredom begets creativity. And so uh, for a lot of folks nowadays, the uh, the need to be present is something that cannot be emphasized enough. I agree. And people who have never read Alan Watts have nothing to do with Alan Watts or anything like that. All concur. People have degrees in these matters. You know, therapists and other people, educational experts, devices have a tremendous cost. You got to be very careful with your young people and the devices and what they do with them. They, they do wonderful things. It's great to have the access through the internet in your pocket. That's all, there's good stuff with that, but what a price we pay sometimes with what these devices do and social media with that, there's a big cost to that. If they had social media when I was a young man, a teenager, I don't know if I would have made it through with the kind of shaming and what have you that happens to these young people. Uh, it just, it's, it's not good. There's a price to be paid and there's parents we need to monitor, assist, be there for our kids and have limits on it so that they don't run afoul of uh, some of the problems that, that, are, that are out there. He is Ed Begley Jr. The new book, it's his memoir. It's, I can almost guarantee, going to end up on my year-end best books list. It is titled To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. You get it now wherever books are sold. Ed, thank you so much for the time once again, and uh, congratulations on this book. Thank you so much for all your kind words, Trey. You're a very nice man. It's good to see you again. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. Talk to you next time on Books on Pod. <laughs>